0: from Luke 23, verses 39 through 43. Then one of the criminals hanging there began to yell insults at him. Aren't you the Messiah? Save yourself and us. But the other answered, rebuking him. Don't you even fear God, since you are undergoing the same punishment? We are punished justly, because we're getting back what we deserve for the things that we did. But this man has done nothing wrong. Then he said, Jesus, remember me when you come into your kingdom. And he said to him, Truly I tell you, today you will be with me in paradise. This is the word of the Lord. All right, good morning. So I'm Matt, if you didn't put that together. I don't know if I can, I'm going to go this way. Let's see if this will helps. I'm one of the elders at Gateway. And uh, we're so excited just to to see everyone, especially those who join who are guests this morning, uh, to celebrate Henry. Thank you for for joining us. So the date was January 1st, 1956. A 26-year-old Baptist minister named Martin was speaking to the Dexter Avenue Baptist Church in Montgomery, Alabama. He was struggling with despair that day, but he found it within him to project hope to his congregation. The text for the day was a single phrase pulled from the concluding thoughts at the end of the Epistle of Jude. It reads I'm just I'm going to pause for a second cuz this thing's feeding back. Hello, check. All right. But you, dear friends, as you build yourselves up in the most holy faith, praying in the Holy Spirit, keep yourselves in the love of God, waiting expectantly for the mercy of our Lord Jesus Christ for eternal life. Having mercy on those who waver, save others by snatching them from the fire, Have mercy in others, but with fear, hating even the garment defiled by the flesh. Now to him who is able to protect you from stumbling and to make you stand in the presence of his glory without blemish and with great joy, to the only God our Savior, through Jesus Christ our Lord, be glory, majesty, power, and authority before all time, now and forever. Amen. Amen. So young Martin was riffing on the phrase, God is able that day. And in a particularly vulnerable portion of his sermon, he looked at his congregation and said this, much of my ministry has been given to fighting against social evil. There are times that I get despondent, and I wonder if it is worth it. But then something says to me deep down within God is able. You need not worry. So this morning, I say to you, we must continue to struggle against evil, but don't worry, God is able. Do not worry about segregation. It will die, because God is against it. Of course, that man was the Reverend Dr. Martin Luther King, Jr., and they had just started the Montgomery bus boycott only a month earlier. Little did he know, He was already tired, and it would stretch for another 11 months until nearly Christmas Day of 1956. But Martin and the Dexter Avenue Baptist Church trusted God. They believed that God was able. They entrusted their very lives to him. What choice did they have? So the question before us today, it is related. It's to whom or to what Are you entrusting with the care of your body and your soul? And in accordance with the series we're going through right now on our hearts, being living letters written upon by Christ himself, who do you trust to guide the story of your life? And maybe even who is able to? Now, there are several assumptions built into my questions here that one might want to test. That is, that you maybe have a soul, or that one can provide care for a soul, or that somehow you could entrust that to another person in some way. But for our purposes today, we're going to try to avoid the technical mumbo jumbo and focus on the soul and body as the two distinct parts as an integrated whole. Some may try to parse it out into two or three, like spirit and soul being separate things. There's a lot of rabbit trails you could go down. We're not going to do that today. So for our purposes, when we refer to the soul or the spirit, it's usually because we're trying to reference the part of us that is knowable and accessible only to God. The thing that makes us us. The aspect of our personhood that's invisible to all others. Or, if you want a dictionary word, the incorporeal part of us. Okay, so back to some questions. To whom or to what are you entrusting with the care of your body? How about your spirit? How about just your whole and integrated self? Everything that you are. Maybe this morning you feel a little bit like Reverend King did on New Year's Day in 1956 despondent, or wondering if it's all worth it. Maybe you feel unqualified in something, or like a failure. Maybe you've been burned by other people so many times that you struggle to trust anyone. Or you feel stuck in your own life. You can't see a way out. Or maybe it's just a struggle to hear somebody read from the Bible because you've been burned by religious leaders, or who have used it to justify control or abuse. Or maybe you're just numb altogether. Or maybe you're just really happy, and that's cool too. Scientists tell us that when we feel threatened, the human instinct is fight or flight. I don't think it's always quite so black and white, because we experience a wide range of fear, anxiety, terror, confusion, frustration, abandonment, betrayal. There's a lot of words we could throw at this. Sometimes flight looks a little bit like running away. Sometimes it looks like a quiet shrinking into yourself, a slow isolating and disconnecting from those around you. In short, we begin to lose ourselves in the plot around us and in the broader plot. We subtly begin to give up on ourselves in various ways. And we subtly begin to give up on God, too. So today, I'm here to spur you on and declare that the God of Martin Luther King Jr. is alive and well. And he is still able. He isn't done with us yet. In Psalm 31, we read a song written by a man who probably should have been pretty obscure. By his life, uh, but his life actually turned out to be radically shaped and centered on God. After God rejected Saul as the king of Israel, He sent a prophet named Samuel to a little town you may have heard of before, Bethlehem. There Samuel anoints Jesse's youngest son, David, to become the new king of Israel. Of course, this is like David and Goliath David. right? This is the David who would go on to produce his family line that Jesus would later come from. But David didn't know that full story yet. But he did know that God was able. Years later, amid much turmoil in his life, we read David's Psalm 31, and it starts this way. It says, Lord, I seek refuge in you. Let me never be disgraced. Save me by your righteousness. Listen closely to me. Rescue me quickly. Be a rock of refuge for me a mountain fortress to save me. For you are my God and my fortress. You lead me and guide me because of your name. You will free me from the net that is secretly set for me. You are my refuge and into your hand I entrust my spirit. You redeem me, Lord God of truth. Now David was a man who experienced his fair share of disappointment and danger. And that's probably an understatement if you read his bio. The guy was constantly under threat of being killed. And yet he was smart, good-looking, creative. He had security. He was wealthy. Like, he had a lot going for him, too. But even with all of that, he knew that God was the only one who was ultimately worthy of entrusting with his life and his death. And in many ways, the Psalms are a testimony to that. We sort of see his private journal, his prayer book. And I would submit that prayer and worship, even for us, are both testimonies to where we place our trust. In verse five, David says, into your hand I entrust my spirit. You redeem me, Lord God of truth. So when David had nowhere to turn, he trusted God. He believed both that God was trustworthy and capable of caring for that which no one else could touch, his very soul. He says, into your hand I entrust my spirit. So God offers himself as a safe haven, a sanctuary city. The language of David highlights how much he expects of a God. Save me, listen to me, rescue me, be a rock, lead me, guide me, free me, redeem me. And that's just like the first five verses of the psalm. He's expecting a lot of God. God is the creator of our bodies and our spirits. Not only does he author life, he sustains it. He offers himself as the very connective tissue and animating force within reality itself. That just kind of means that God is everything, right? (laughs) He's got it all going on. But he isn't only generative or creative. He's also perfect. That God is good. So where there is brokenness, he, he moves toward it. He offers mending to bring wholeness. Where there is chaos, he offers peace. So confronting chaos with peace was something that the Reverend King understood well. He'd become convinced of the power of nonviolent resistance by reading about the methods of Mahatma Gandhi. But he heard about it from a white theologian and evangelist named E. Stanley Jones. Jones had become friends with Gandhi in India, but was apprehensive to publish his personal reflections on him because he knew he'd receive pushback from Christians. He did it anyway. And just eight years before King would be standing before the Dexter Avenue Baptist Church on New Year's Day, Jones wrote this in the foreword to his book on Gandhi. He said, I am still an evangelist. I bow to Mahatma Gandhi, but I kneel at the feet of Christ. And I give him my full and final allegiance. Yet a little man, meaning Gandhi here, who fought a system in the framework of which I stand has taught me more of the spirit of Christ than perhaps any other man in East or West. This book is a symbol of my gratitude." Now, you can imagine that that was a pretty controversial thing to say. And I think this highlights a principle that is central to our ongoing series, which is this. Don't be surprised by the ways, or I'm sorry, don't be surprised when Jesus reveals himself in unexpected places. For Jones, Gandhi helped him see people and God in ways he couldn't have otherwise. And Jones, in turn, helped shape the moral imagination of a young Martin Luther King Jr. who was thirsty for social justice strategies grounded in the character of God. He believed that God was able. And the world was about to see just how true that actually was. In the book of Isaiah, we get a little glimpse, a moment in time, when the Israelites were faced with their own intimidating threat. The Assyrians were conquering and taking people into captivity. And God spoke to his people through the prophet Isaiah. He gave them one of the most hope-filled passages we have recorded in the scriptures. This is Isaiah 9, 6. It says, For a child will be born for us, a son will be given to us, and the government will be on his shoulders. He will be named Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Eternal Father, Prince of Peace. The dominion will be vast and its prosperity will never end. He will reign on the throne of David and over his kingdom to establish and sustain it with justice and righteousness from now on and forever. The zeal of the Lord of Armies will accomplish this." So there's a lot we could dive into here, and I suppose in some ways I'm sort of jumping the church calendar here because this sounds a little bit like Christmas, but let's zoom in on just this idea that Jesus is named Wonderful Counselor. So wonder here is crucial because it sets God apart from all other would-be counselors in our lives. That is to say, he's not just one of many. You could say God is a miraculous counselor. He isn't ordinary. He is extraordinary. He is filled with wonder. God is wondrous. Next, the word counselor here is the same word we see used elsewhere in the Psalms when God refers to himself as an advisor or a protector. Psalm 32, 6 through 9 gives us sort of a call and response between the psalmist and God. Verse 6 says... Therefore, let everyone who is faithful pray to you immediately. When great floodwaters come, they will not reach him. You are my hiding place. You protect me from trouble. You surround me with shouts of deliverance. And then the response. I will instruct you and show you the way to go. With my eye on you, I will give you counsel. Do not be like a horse or a mule. This is such a great verse. Do not be like a horse or a mule without understanding that must be controlled by bit and bridle or else it will not come near to you. I will instruct you and show the way to go. That is the Hebrew word translated counselor, basically. And this is the very good, very good news for God's oppressed people. They're not alone. And by extension, it's good news for us today. God is not just a good, good guide, which he is, but it's his very name wonderful counselor he is a miraculous guide so there's this two-part dance between instruction and movement and as i was reflecting on this i i kind of thought about the amount of faith i put in something like google maps i mean it's like a lot maybe some of you use that to get here today and maybe it abandoned your trust at this point i don't know (laughs) But if you drive around in any major city, if you're anything like me, I'm obeying like the Google lady, like she's the resurrected Christ, right? Like lady wisdom is Google for me. And I think this is probably a little bit more rigid than the psalmist has in mind here. I think there's a lot more freedom offered to us in Christ. But I do think that spirit of instruction leading to movement could give you a little bit of a an image for the dance that's happening. So first God instructs us by revealing himself to us. He, re- he reveals himself to us in many ways. Uh, one way is just through something like general revelation, through things like gravity, or bees, or sunsets, or human creativity, and so on. We get to know God and who he is through what he creates. But it's, it's general in that it's universally available to everybody. And it's also general in that you can only sort of learn general things about God. Maybe say not like the doctrine of the Trinity or something by looking at a flower. Um, but But God does instruct us through general revelation and common grace. Similarly, he reveals himself generally through the conscience of each person. Jesus also reveals himself in various special revelations. Jesus revealed himself in the living word by taking on flesh as a human being. Uh, he reveals himself in the scriptures. He could reveal himself in dreams or visions or manifestations of the person of Christ via the Holy Spirit. Second, God accompanies us through the person of the Holy Spirit today. As it's said in Psalm 32, 8, I will instruct you and show you the way to go. It's not that God is far off here. He's remarkably patient and present. He desires for us to grow immature. He wants us to respond to his love with, our, with a love of our own. So contrary to how it feels at times, he's actually thrilled, I believe, to offer us guidance. This is sort of the radical aha moment for the early church when the indwelling Holy Spirit changes everything in the book of Acts. It's how we see everything to begin to change in our own lives. When the Holy Spirit takes up residence in the bodies of believers. The word is tabernacle. He makes a home with us. We become living stones, as it's said in the New Testament, of this beautiful and glorious new global temple of God. And knit together, not in isolation, we stand both as a testimony to the world and to each other of God's power to change and to redeem. So so the Holy Spirit leads us, meaning he goes before us, Not that he is dragging us along. And for me, that was like a change. That idea of leadership not being like a jerk yelling at you, say, hurry up, go this way, right? There's a leading, there's a choice that is preserved that I think is crucial in holy leadership. He's leading through continual invitation. Remember God's counsel to the psalmist in 32.9. Do not be like a senseless horse or a mule that needs a bit and bridle to keep it under control. And I think this is foundational to our walk with God. We don't want to be like bridled animals who require discipline or constraint because of our own stubbornness or immaturity or stupidity. Put any word you want on it. Practicing the way of Jesus is a choice, and one that is remade moment by moment as we follow in the rhythms and pathways of our wonderful counselor. Jesus isn't just an advisor. He's also our advocate. He is in the thick of it with us. He is trustworthy. He doesn't violate us. He knows the very secrets of the universe and yet is generous enough to imbue us with our own wills. But what do we do with all this freedom? Well, I suppose that's where it gets tough. Let's circle back quickly to Psalm 31, five. It says, into your hand I entrust my spirit, you redeem me, Lord God of truth. Okay, so if you're like me, this is all sounding pretty churchy at this point. I mean, what do I do when I face the reality that I'm lonely? or I'm privately struggling with finances, or that I feel trapped in an abusive relationship, and so on. Is the way of Jesus powerful enough to dismantle something like segregation? How real can this actually get? I think that depends a little bit on how we train our hearts through our habits, our expectations, and our cultural norms. In other words, the practicality of the way of Jesus is contingent upon the ways we intentionally structure our lives around Jesus or not. If we think of God as orbiting around us, with our lives at the center, God will always seem peripheral, extra. Something like a subscription to Disney Plus or Amazon Prime. I mean, those things are they're nice and they make your life maybe more enjoyable. But it is an add-on. But if we center Christ and build our lives around His life, His teachings, His people, His kingdom, things get practical really quick. If we direct our hearts to orbiting around the glow of His love, suddenly we find ourselves looking for His direction and warmth rather than trying to drum up an identity or a solution to present to the world for their approval. So Jesus is the stuff of real blood, real sweat, and real tears. He made the dirt under our feet. This is as real as it gets. This is white collar, this is blue collar, and this is no collar at all. So, I, a question to ask yourself God? Do I trust you enough to set before you the very core of who I am? Everything I am and dream to be placed before you for your wisdom and care. Do I believe that you are able? What's so striking about the person of Jesus is that he takes on human flesh, and he submits himself to the very brokenness and resistance we feel in our bodies when we meditate on questions like these, maybe. Earlier, I asked these questions. To who or to whom are you entrusting with your care, the care of your body, your spirit, your whole and integrated self? Let's go back in time for a moment to see three quick examples of how this can work its way out. Imagine the scene. We're in ancient Jerusalem 2,000 years ago. You have a 33-year-old Jewish man named Jesus, unjustly mounted on a Roman cross at a place called the Skull. He has just endured public ridicule, blasphemy, the denial and scattering of his own friends, violence and scourging, the examination by religious leaders and by government officials. It's like every sphere of this guy's life is collapsing. And there's a little sign, just to dig it in, (laughs) above him mockingly saying, this is the king of the Jews. He is flanked on either side by two criminals who are dying alongside him. And the Roman guards are literally before him dividing up his clothes right in front of him. And he's not even dead yet. Okay, so press pause for a minute. Like, if I'm reading this story, and I know who Jesus is, is, of course, I'm thinking, when are the lightning bolts going to show up, right? I mean, he just was healing people, turning water into wine, walking on water, transporting places, reading people's minds. Like, don't give up in the fourth quarter, Jesus. Like, this is game time. Let's go. But there he hangs voluntarily giving himself unto death. Jesus, the son of Mary and Joseph of Nazareth, brother to James, friend of Mary, Peter and John, dying. So one, one of the criminals barks my question at Jesus in some way, providing the first example of the ways we can respond to God in our lives. And I call this response blasphemy aren't you the Messiah? Save yourself and us. On the surface, that sounds right, but the criminal, who is literally dying a capital punishment, begins cursing out Jesus and mocking him. This isn't the criminal's first rodeo on blasphemy. He's been scoffing at God in word and deed his entire life. And whether he realizes it or not, he's finally just having an opportunity to give it to him right to his face. Mockery is instructive, though, and I think it's a little bit of a tell for what's going on in someone's heart. And this is just my opinion here. But I think the criminal does want to be saved. But I think it's just that he wants his life spared so he can get it back in control. Right now, he's facing execution, which is about the least amount of control you can have over yourself. That's why he wants to be saved. It's not that he cares about Jesus. It's that he's trying to preserve his life which is understandable. Example two is the other criminal, we'll call this response humility. He actually rebukes the first criminal first. He says, don't you even fear God since you are undergoing the same punishment? We are punished justly because we're getting back what we deserve for the things we did, but this man has done nothing wrong. Then he said, Jesus, remember me when you come into your kingdom. This man sees Jesus for who he is, the Messiah. Like Criminal One, he's being asked to be saved, but he's doing it on totally different terms. And here's what sticks out to me. He doesn't actually ask Jesus to save his life. He knows he's guilty, and he acknowledges that before Jesus. His focus isn't on getting back to business or self-preservation. It's on his desire for Jesus to bring him wherever it is that he's going. In his dying moments, this man sees the life draining from Jesus and simultaneously finds his own life wrapped up in the beaten body of Christ. The criminal's own life becomes a second priority to that of his desire for Jesus to remember him. The criminal entrusts himself fully to Jesus because he recognizes Jesus is merciful just like we read earlier in the epistle of Jude. And that was a very good idea. Jesus responds by saying, "'Truly I tell you, today you will be with me in paradise.'" Can you just imagine the flood of relief (laughs) this man must have felt to hear those words from Jesus? This man was a death row criminal. He had no pedigree, he had nothing, nothing he was almost certainly despised by those in the crowd. And yet Jesus changes the world again through a most unimaginable promise. He says, truly I tell you, today you will be with me in paradise. Even on a cross, Jesus positions himself as a servant to the lost and the weak and rejected. Our last example is Jesus himself. It's now 3 o'clock in the afternoon. And since noon, there had been darkness in the land. Three hours of midday darkness. Luke 23 says the curtain of the sanctuary was split down the middle. And Jesus called out with a loud voice, Father, into your hands I entrust my spirit. Saying this, he breathed his last. So the curtain of the temple rips from top to bottom. Jesus shouts out a prayer. To God the Father, into your hands I entrust my spirit. And then Jesus, the second Adam, the perfect man, is dead. Now, I have no intention here of overcomplicating either. Like, for our purposes today, we simply want to notice that Jesus Christ, in the same way he lived, he died. I couldn't imagine more fitting words coming at the end of his life. Into your hands I entrust my spirit. I think this is such a a beautiful mantra for us to reorient our lives in orbit around God at the center. Also do you recognize the words of Jesus here? They're from Psalm 31. Listen to the beginning of the Psalm of David with new ears and envision Jesus in pain singing this to himself on the cross. You are my rock and my fortress. You lead me and guide me because of your name. You will free me from the net that is secretly set for me, for you are my refuge. Into your hands I entrust my spirit. You redeem me, Lord God of truth. Psalm 31 beautifully connects these two ideas that we've been broadly exploring today. First, that God is a wonderful counselor, or as Psalm 31 says, he leads and guides us. And two, that God invites us to entrust him and everything, with everything we are. The good and the bad and the ugly of our lives, we bring it all because God is able. And I think the order of these two is somewhat important. If we don't trust God as our wonderful guide and advocate, we're probably not going to trust him with our bodies and our spirits. You won't build your life in and around him. You won't res- let him resurrect you from the inside out. The grand arc of human history is ultimately defined by God's ability, not our dysfunction. Jesus rises from the dead, defeating death, and removing the separation between us and God that was created by sin. And through power, the power of his spirit, he calls us to join him as ministers of reconciliation in the world. We echo the proclamation, I'm doing Christmas here again, of the angel who appeared to some shepherds following the birth of Jesus, which said, don't be afraid. For look, I proclaim to you good news of great joy that will be for all people. A Savior who is the Messiah, Lord, was born for you in the city of what? David, Bethlehem. Sometime around the turn of the 19th to 20th century, there was a man named Henry Clay Morrison, who was traveling to Baltimore to speak at the World Conference of Methodism. However, upon his arrival, he was informed that he had been charged with wrongdoing by a Methodist official in Texas. Morrison had held a tent revival in a Texas town without permission of the official. And because of this, Morrison was removed from the program in Baltimore. Now the man who had invited Morrison to speak at the event, was he was scrambling to find Morrison another opportunity to speak and he scheduled him to appear at a midweek prayer meeting at a church in Frederick, Maryland. Because Morrison believed that God is able, he didn't phone it in. He preached powerfully and many came to the altar to pray at his invitation. One of those who responded was a young 13-year-old boy from Baltimore named E. Stanley Jones, Eli. Jones would later attend Asbury Seminary and go on to become one of the most prolific evangelists of the 20th century. The thing is that if those charges hadn't been brought against Morrison, he would never showed up in Frederick that night. But he had entrusted himself, body and spirit, to God he believed that God could write a better story, even when it didn't look like it. And here's the kicker. That man, Henry Clay Morrison, who helped start Asbury College in Kentucky, is actually my cousin's great-grandfather. And here I stand today, over 80 years since his death, telling you about him. He did many things, but one of those things he did was that he preached to a young Eli, Stanley Jones, who went on to move to India as a missionary and befriend Mahatma Gandhi, who recorded his experiences in a book with a brilliant young, for, that a brilliant young minister named Martin from Montgomery, Alabama, would read when he needed a tool for social resistance. Friends, the point is just that we don't know what God is up to in our midst. Today, right now, I can only imagine the embarrassment of the guy who scheduled Henry Clay Morrison for a midweek prayer service. And he's probably stressed out thinking this is so embarrassing. But this man, that man, that unnamed man that I don't know, is actually a very important person in this story. We don't know him, but God definitely does. So we have no idea what's in store for this church. Or this city, but we do know this, that he is able to protect you from stumbling and to make you stand in the presence of his glory without blemish and with great joy. So beloved, I invite you to trust him. I invite you to entrust yourself to him because God is able.